Take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're continuing our series called Growing Together as God's Spiritual House as we look at 1 Peter 2 this morning. And we've been looking at how God is building up a spiritual house, namely the church. And we've seen what our role and our responsibility is as those who are a part of this spiritual house and what God calls us to do. We've seen the foundation of the spiritual house, which is Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. And then last week we looked at our function, what you and I are to do as those who belong to this spiritual house and what God calls us to do. But this morning we come to this portion of this passage in order to understand how it is that we have become a part of this spiritual house and why it is that others are not a part of this spiritual house. And so let me read our passage for us and remind us of what Peter says here in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. Follow along as I read our text for us. Peter says this, and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In 1850, at the age of 16, a teenage boy was essentially tricked into preaching his first sermon in a small village of Teversham, England. This teenage boy traveled to Teversham with a friend, thinking that his friend was the preacher for this small service in this village. However, along the way, his friend told him that he wasn't preaching and that if this small village was to hear a sermon, that this 16-year-old boy had better preach a sermon. As they walked to the village, this 16-year-old decided that he was going to preach on the sweetness and love of Jesus. And the text that he chose is the very text before us in 1 Peter 2. This 16-year-old eventually became known as the Prince of Preachers. This 16-year-old boy was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And this morning, I am... Obviously, nothing close to Spurgeon. I'm not trying to be Spurgeon in any way except one. There's one way that I desire to be Spurgeon. I desire for you to know and be reminded of the sweetness and love of Jesus. But you know, we live in a world where not everyone sees or knows 
the sweetness and the love of Jesus. In fact, we live in a world where many have denied Jesus. And in doing so, they have denied the salvation that He offers to all who would come to Him. Why is that? Why do people deny Jesus? Well, some just flat out reject Jesus because they don't even believe that there is a God. They bought into the lie of evolution and atheism. They think that we're all here by chance. So they don't need a God to save them. And therefore, they don't need Jesus. Many deny Jesus because they worship a false God. They've made up a God in their own imagination and they think that that God is the one true God. And so they reject Christ who is God in the flesh. Others deny Jesus because they have a wrong view of Jesus. They might think that he was a a good guy who did some good things while he was here on earth, but they deny that he's God in the flesh. And so they've created their own Jesus. And so they don't worship the one true Jesus. And then others deny Jesus because they think that they can get to heaven on their own without Jesus. They think that they're good enough and by their own good works, God is going to accept them into His kingdom. In fact, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 9. Hold your finger here in 1 Peter 2 and turn over with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 obviously is a glorious text. 9, 10, and 11. Romans chapter 9, God puts His sovereignty on display. He says He will have mercy on whom He desires and He will harden whom He desires. God is the sovereign one over the entire universe. But notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 9 and verse 30. He says this, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. What does Paul tell us here? He's telling us the way to salvation, the way to be saved. It is by faith, by faith in Christ. In the Son, the stone. The Gentiles received the gift of salvation. They attained righteousness, justification. And how did that happen? How did they do it? By faith. It was all by faith. But the Jews, Paul tells us here, who had the law, who had the way of salvation revealed to them in the Scriptures who had it all laid out for them, what did they do? They didn't pursue salvation by faith, but they pursued it by what? By works. By their own good works. They thought that because of their family heritage and by the good works that they did, that that would save them. But that's not how anyone ever has been saved. It's always been by faith. 
And so these Jews, they, they stumbled. And who did they stumble over? They stumbled over Jesus. They stumbled over Jesus. They didn't receive Him as their Savior. They didn't receive Him as their Lord. Because He didn't fit their understanding of who the Messiah would be. And He came and told them that their works were worthless and could not save them. He told them the truth. But they wouldn't listen. What did they do? They stumbled over Him. He became a stumbling block to them. To the Gentiles who had nothing to bring because they didn't have the law to tell them what to do. All they could do is come with nothing but faith. That was it. That's all they could bring. They couldn't bring their family heritage. They couldn't bring the law, the worship there in the temple and all the things that the Jews were doing. All they could do is come by faith. That was it. And Paul is saying here, they are saved by faith in Christ. And all those who come to Christ by faith find Him to be precious. But to those who think that they can save themselves, they find Christ to be a stumbling block and a rock of offense. And notice there in verse 33, you see this in the NAS, it's in all caps there. Paul is quoting from Isaiah 28 and verse 16, which is the exact same passage that Peter quotes from back in our passage in 1 Peter 2. It's the exact same thing. In fact, turn back over there to 1 Peter 2. And let's look at this passage here together. Now, as I've said, we've been, we've been talking about the church being the spiritual house of God and how God is building that house. We saw that Christ is the foundation, who Peter says in verse 4, there was rejected by men. Christ is the foundation. He was rejected by men. Then we saw our function as those who haven't rejected Christ, but who have come by faith in Christ. We saw that we make up then the holy priesthood. There's a function for us to do as those who have been saved by Christ. What do we do? We offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. And why are they acceptable to God? Because we come through Christ. We come through the Messiah. We come through the Savior. As Peter says there at the end of verse 5. And so we've seen the, the foundation and the function. This morning we come now to the faith. The faith of those in God's spiritual house. The faith of those in God's spiritual house. Notice again what Peter says there in verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Peter tells us here that this is contained in Scripture. This here, what I'm, what I'm saying to you, this is contained in Scripture. And what is he doing here? He's, he's quoting from Isaiah 28, 16, just as we saw Paul quote from back in Romans chapter 9. Peter is quoting this passage here as well. You see that again in the NAS. It's in all caps because it's a quotation from the Old Testament and specifically from Isaiah 28, 16. But notice Peter tells us here that this is contained in Scripture. Why does Peter tell us that this is contained in Scripture? Well, Peter's helping us to understand that this is something that is divine. This is something that God promised He would do all the way back in the Old Testament. And notice Peter doesn't say it is written. Because Peter is not actually quoting directly word for word from 
one Old Testament passage, but he quotes from Isaiah 28 verse, and verse 16 here in verse 6. Then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 8 in verse 8, and then he quotes from Psalm 18 in verse 7. So what is he doing here? He's taking all of these Old Testament passages and he's putting them together to make the point that this is contained in Scripture and this is what God has revealed to us. He's saying this is, this is what the Scripture says. This here is divine authoritative revelation given in the Word of God. This here is what God says. He promised that He would send His Son Jesus to be the cornerstone. And yet there would be a people who would receive Him and there would be a people who reject Him, who find Him to be a stumbling block. This is all a part of God's perfect plan. Something that God planned long ago. And so the attention now is on Jesus, the, the stone Peter draws us right back to this living stone that he talked about in verse 4 where he says, in coming to Him as to a living stone. Coming to Christ. And then in verse 5, notice he shifts there and he says, now you, you who are living in the church, this is, this is what you are to do. But now here in verse 6, he comes right back to Christ. Don't forget Christ. Remember Christ. And the attention now is on, on Jesus. Christ is the stone. And now we have to deal with the stone. And everyone has to deal with this stone, both Jew and Gentile. They have to deal with the stone. They have to deal with Christ. What does Peter say there? Well, he, he quotes Isaiah 28, 16 in verse 6, and he says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. Now we look at, at Peter quoting this from Isaiah, and we would ask there, who is the I? Notice he says there, Behold, I lay in Zion. Who is the I in this verse? Who is speaking we must ask that question because who is Peter quoting? He's quoting Isaiah, right? But who is actually speaking in this passage? This is the Father. This is God speaking. This is the voice of God here. And he's speaking through the prophet Isaiah. God is the one who is speaking and God is the one who is acting. And notice what he says there. He says at the very beginning, he says, Behold! Why does God say that? Why would God say, Behold? He's calling attention to the announcement that he is making. Essentially, what God is saying here is, Listen up! This is very important for you to know and to understand. Behold! Listen to what I am saying here. What does God say? He says, behold, I lay in Zion. God is saying here, I am going to do something here. I am going to lay in Zion. A choice stone. Now what's interesting here is that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, the word for lay that is used there is the word embalo. That's the Greek word that's used, meaning to put into a specific area or to lay down or to set in. That's what the, the Greek Old Testament says. That's, that's the word that's used there is embalo. And of course, that word would be used when speaking of putting in a stone or setting a stone in place. God laid Christ in Zion. He put him there. But it's interesting here because Peter doesn't use the word embalo here. He uses a different Greek word. Even though he's quoting from Isaiah, he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses a different Greek word for lay here. 
He uses the Greek word tithemi, which means to a point. To a point. So what Peter is saying here is not just that God has laid the cornerstone, but God has taken the initiative and appointed Christ as the cornerstone. God is the one who has done this. God is not, but God is not just the one who is doing the action, but He's also taken the initiative. God's appointed this to happen. This is His plan to place His choice stone in Zion and to build His church on this chief cornerstone. This is God's plan. It's God's work and it's His plan. And so, if you reject the cornerstone, who are you rejecting? God. The Father. You reject Him. You're rejecting the Father. You're rejecting His plan. Because this is all His plan. This is what God planned to do. And what was His plan? To place His choice stone in Zion. Where is that? Where is Zion? It's Jerusalem. Zion is Jerusalem. Zion is is a synonym for Jerusalem. Which, by the way, is what Isaiah calls it in Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah calls it there, Zion. Now, why is this important for us to know and to understand that God's plan is to send His Son to Zion, to Jerusalem? Why is it important for us to understand this and to know this? Well, living here in America, we can often think of God's redemptive plan and focus our attention here on us. That in God's redemptive plan, well, here we are. Americans. And it's so easy for us to to look at God's redemptive plan throughout history and begin to focus on self and what God is doing here. I mean, our nation at one point was known as a Christian nation. We even have still to this day, yes, I checked it the other day, in God we trust on our money. It's still there. They may not like it, but it's there. There it is. And so it's easy to have the focus of God's plan of redemption be here where we live, focusing upon self and us. But God has chosen Israel and specifically the city of Jerusalem to be the center of redemptive history. That's God's plan. That's God's choice. Behold, I lay in Zion. In Zion, a choice stone. Jerusalem is the place where Christ came to die. It's also the place where He what? Rose again. It's where the church began. The first church was right there in Jerusalem. And it's the place where He will establish His throne when He returns. Because He's coming back. And He will set up His throne right there in Jerusalem. Why is there so much war going on over there right now? You want to know why? Because God's whole plan of redemptive history all revolves right there around Jerusalem. What does the enemy want to do? Destroy it. He wants to stop God's plan from happening will he do it no no our God wins 
and Christ will return and he will establish his throne right there in Zion, in Jerusalem. We see this in Psalm 2 and in Jeremiah 3 and in Zechariah 14 and many other places in the Old Testament. And so Jerusalem is a very important place. That's why we also pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Because that will happen when Christ establishes His throne in Jerusalem. You want to know something? You know now they're calling for peace in the Middle East and, and to cease what's going on there. A ceasefire and all this stuff, right? They're calling for all of that. You know when there will be peace there? When Christ returns. There will be peace. But only when the Messiah comes back and establishes his throne there. And when that happens, oh, then there's going to be peace. But until that happens, there's war. There's war. And so when we are praying for the peace of Jerusalem, what are we praying for? The return of Christ. (laughs) That Christ would come back to rule and to reign as king over all. What is God saying here? God says, I lay my stone in Jerusalem, in Zion. And then notice how God describes this stone. He says, I lay in Zion, in verse 6 there, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And there are three adjectives that describe him here. Three adjectives. The first one is choice. The second one is precious. And the third is cornerstone. Those are three adjectives there. Let's look at this first word. This first word is choice. As we saw back up in verse 4, Peter speaks of Christ as being choice and precious in the sight of God. And again, choice there meaning elect. That Christ is the one whom God has elected. Jesus is God's elect one, the, whom the, the one in whom the Father has chosen to be the Messiah. He is it. And again, how did God affirm that Christ was the chosen one? How did He affirm that? He raised Him from the dead. He brought Him back to life. That was God's affirmation that He is my choice one. He is the one in whom I have chosen. He is my son. And he is God's choice one. And then there's a second adjective, a second word. God says, again, this is God speaking here. God says that Christ is precious. That he's precious. Another way that we could say this is valuable or or costly. This word precious here means of considerable value and worth. And it indicates the intrinsic value of the stone. That God has evaluated this stone and He has concluded that it is invaluable. That He is invaluable. Of such great worth that He is priceless. You can't put a price on Him. He's priceless. It'd be like taking a, a precious diamond to a jeweler to have them look over that diamond and then tell you the value of that diamond as they examine it. God is saying here that He has done that with His choice stone and His conclusion is priceless. He's priceless. He's invaluable. Christ Our Messiah is of such great worth that even the Father can't put a price tag on Him. He's precious. Church, is He precious to you? Is that how you see Christ? Is He precious to you? Then there's a, a third adjective that God uses and He says there that he is a cornerstone. This word here denotes a stone that is lying at the extreme corner. 
It's that, that one, that, that chief cornerstone that is there. We, we talked about this before, that this is the stone that is, was to be cut perfectly because the rest of the foundation was built off of this one stone. This cornerstone controls the lines of the rest of the building. And we know because Peter already alluded to this back up in verse 4 that this cornerstone is none other than Christ Himself. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the one that the Father has chosen as the foundation of the church. And God has evaluated Him and concluded that He is priceless. And if that's the Father's estimation of Him, why would anyone not want Him? Why would anyone not want Him? But the sad reality is there are many who don't want Him. Many who will face Him, who do face Him, but they reject Him. And here's where it comes to. It all comes down to this. You can either believe in Him or you can reject Him. Those are the options. And that is what Peter, again quoting from Isaiah 28, 16, lays out for us here. There are those who believe. And then in verse 7, he tells us there are those who disbelieve. But notice what Peter tells us about those who believe in Him. Notice there in the second half of verse 6, it says, and, and he who believes in Him will not be disappointed. And again, who is speaking here? Ultimately, this is the Father speaking. This is the Father saying, look, I have sent my Son to Zion. I have laid Him there. And all those who believe in Him will not be disappointed. This is such a comforting verse for us, isn't it? So comforting. Now, as we talked about back up in verse 4, we are those who are coming to Him. Where He says there at the beginning of verse 4, and coming to Him as to a living stone. That's us. Not that we just came to Him once at salvation, but that we came to Christ at salvation and continually come to Him for sustenance and strength. Because that is what true believers do. We don't just come once to Christ and say, okay, good, I'm in, I got it, now I don't need Christ anymore. No, my entire life depends upon Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We can't live our lives without Him. And that's how we're described there in verse 6. You see those words there? He who believes. Who is that? It's us. It's the church. It's those who have been redeemed by Christ. And that word there, believes, in the Greek is a present active participle, meaning this. It's an ongoing, continual faith in Christ. That's what God is telling us here. He who believes. He who has an ongoing, continual faith in Christ. This is not some kind of one-time faith like raising a hand or saying a prayer so that you're in and then you get to go on and live your life however you want to live it. This is an ongoing faith that is the life of every true believer. And notice what it what Peter tells us there, this faith is in Him. He who believes in Him. That is, this faith is in Christ, in the stone, the chief cornerstone. It is faith in Him that makes us a member of this spiritual house. And all those who make up this spiritual house continue to have faith in Him until the very end. That's how we're described here. That's what God is saying here. 
Our faith is fully and completely in Him, not in ourselves, trying to get ourselves into heaven, like the Jews who thought that they could work their way to heaven. Nope, our faith is not in self. Our faith is fully and completely in Him, in Christ. It's in Christ who has done the work for us. He did the work to accomplish our salvation. He went to a cross to die for our sins and to make the payment that none of us could make. He was the one who was buried after He died on that cross. He is the one who rose again to life and lives for all of eternity. It is Christ who has accomplished that for us. And our faith must be in Him. You see, it all has to do with the object of our faith. It all has to do with the object of our faith. Our faith is fully and completely in Christ. It doesn't have to do with the amount of faith that I have. It has to do with the object of my faith. Do you have faith? Yes, Who is it in? Who is the object of that faith? It must be Christ. Because He is the precious cornerstone. He is the one who came and lived a perfect life, died on a cross and rose again on the third day. It must be in Him. And then, All those who have faith in Him, who are these believers, we get what? We get His righteousness imputed to our account. It's not my own righteousness, but it's His righteousness that I get. From the very first day that I believed, and in this present time, and all the way to the future, in all of eternity. I'm His. I belong to Him. Because my faith is fully and completely in Him. And that's what every true believer does. We realize we have nothing to bring, nothing to offer. In fact, even the good works that we have done, we recognize as nothing but filthy rags before our God. And so all we can do is throw ourselves at the mercy of God and believe in His Son. Believe in Christ. And when we do that, there's a wonderful promise that God gives to us. Notice what He says at the end of verse 6. He says, we will not be disappointed. It's a promise from God. We will not be disappointed. Another way that we could say this is we will not be put to shame. Some of your translations say that. You see that there. We will not be put to shame. It's a better way to translate this this word for disappointed here is to say that we will not be put to shame. And the idea here is that we will not be shaken. That's the idea there. We will not be shaken. Why? Because the foundation is Christ who cannot be shaken. He is the chief cornerstone. He is that rock we sang about this morning. And because Christ cannot be shaken, the promise to us is that we will never be shaken. Never be put to shame. And this is an amazing truth, not only for us, but also for Peter's readers. Remember what's going on with them. They're being persecuted. For what? Their faith in Christ. Their faith in the chief cornerstone. And what is Peter saying here to them? Remember the promise of God. You will not be shaken. You will not be put to shame. It's encouragement to them. Keep standing. Be firm in Christ. We will never be put to shame. Another way that we could say this, talking about being put to shame, is we will never be in a place of confusion or shame thinking that somehow Christ has let us down. 
and then be disappointed that our faith was in the wrong thing or the wrong person. That will never happen to those who have their faith in Christ. We won't ever be in that situation. Why? Because Christ is the rock on which can never be shaken. How do we know this? Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 2. I love this. This is so good. This is Peter here in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, notice what he says in verse 24. He's speaking of Christ here and he says, But God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And notice verse 25. For David says of him, that is Christ, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Peter is speaking of Christ going to the cross. And although Peter is quoting David here, David is giving a messianic prophecy which is attributed to Christ. And so although David is speaking these words, these words are prophetically attributed to Christ. This is Christ speaking there in verse 25. For David says of Christ, and now what does Christ say? Notice what he says. I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. This is Christ speaking here. And it's Christ who says that I will not be shaken. Was Christ shaken? Never. Was Christ put to shame? No, He wasn't. Was He disappointed? No. He conquered. He conquered death. They thought that they could shame Him. They thought that they could put Him in the grave and get rid of Him. But what happened? He burst forth. He came out of the grave and said, I don't think so. Not with me, because I will not be shaken. I will never be put to shame. That's our rock. That's our Savior. That's our Redeemer. What did God do with Christ? He honored Him by raising Him from the dead. And that same promise is true for everyone who believes in Him. For everyone who believes in Him, you will never be put to shame. You will never be shaken. You will never be disappointed. How do we know? Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is amazing. Look at verse 7. Notice what Peter says there. He says, this precious value then is for you who believe. Stop right there. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not a huge fan of how the NAS has translated this. I think that a better way to translate this verse is this. So the honor is for you who believe. In fact, that's how the the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it. The Greek there. So the honor is for you who believe. And here is Peter's point. Just as Christ is choice and precious or honored in the sight of God, the same thing is true of all who believe in Him. This is amazing. We know that Christ is valuable and that He is precious. As we saw back up in verse 6. And I believe what Peter is now speaking about here is the the privilege of all those who believe. 
That we, as believers in Christ, the cornerstone, we receive honor just as Christ did when God raised him from the dead. In fact, Peter's already told us about this honor back in chapter 1 and verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by, by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who is the praise and the glory and honor for? For us, for all who have faith in Christ. This should blow our mind. This, studying this, this, this blew my mind. Wait, this promise is for me? Yeah. It's for me. But you see, let me blow your mind a little bit more here. This honor is not just something that we are going to receive in the future, but it is something that we receive now. One commentator says, United with Christ, who is himself chosen and honored with God, they share the honor of the privileged status already described in verses 4 through 6. And how do we know that we already receive this honor? Look down at verse 9. Notice what Peter says there in verse 9. But you, who is that? Believers, us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own what? Possession. You belong to Him. so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are what? The people of God. You belong to Him. He gives honor to you as His child. You and I who believe in Christ are already this. He says there in verse 9, but you are, not you will be. He doesn't say you will be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, but he says you are right now, presently. That is who you are. We are already this because we belong to Christ, the precious cornerstone. We're a part of this spiritual house that God is building up because we have faith in Christ. That's who we are. We receive honor. And you can even look into the future with this honor and see that because we have it now, we will also receive it on the day of judgment that is coming. On the last day when the whole world is judged, when God judges the whole world, as those who believe in Christ, we will receive what? Honor. Not judgment. Our sin has already been paid for at the cross. It is already judged. And our Savior, our precious Savior, took it all upon Him. He took God's wrath upon Himself so that we would not have the wrath of God upon us, but so that we could be honored by God. We already have it now because we belong to Him. And isn't that the promise that Paul tells us in Romans 8.35 where he asks the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Good question, right? Because sometimes we think that maybe we might be separated from the love of Christ. Sometimes we think, man, I just did something. I just sinned against God. Therefore, I must be separated from the love of Christ. Paul asks this question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution which is exactly what Peter's readers are going through, right? 
Or how about famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Answer, no, none of that will. It won't separate you. None of that will separate you from the love of Christ. Then he goes on, well, well maybe death or life or, or angels, principalities. All of these other grand things in the world. Maybe something like that. Maybe something under the world might separate us from the love of Christ. What does Paul say? Nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Nothing in this entire universe will separate us from the love of God. Why? Because we belong to Him. We are part of His spiritual house. And the conclusion of it all, that this is the promise that we have now, and this is the promise that we have for the future. That you are loved by God, and you are honored by God if you are in Christ. And so we receive honor from God because we believe in His precious Son. That's what Peter is saying there in verse 7. This precious value then is for you who believe. This honor that is given is for you. You believers. He's precious to us. We love Him. We adore Him. And we will never, ever be put to shame. We will never be shaken. Never. Because we're in Christ. But that's not true of everyone. It's not true of everyone. Because there are those who will not believe. And that leads to our next point and what we will call the failure the failure to be in God's spiritual house. And for the sake of time, we won't be able to cover all of this. So we'll just touch on this next portion of verse 6 here. Notice what Peter says there. He says, but for those who disbelieve. You see, this is where it all comes to a head. This is the fork in the road. You either believe or you disbelieve. There's no middle ground. There's no sort of believing. It's black and white. You either believe or you disbelieve. And I want you to notice that this is so plain for Peter that he doesn't try and smooth, smooth this over. Notice how clear he is. But for those who disbelieve, he doesn't try and water this truth down. He doesn't try and dumb it down. He says it's very clear here. You either trust in Christ or you don't. I remember hearing a story about my grandmother, who was the youngest of a lot of kids. And her oldest brother was a preacher. And he confronted her one time because he saw that she claimed to believe in Christ, but her life wasn't showing it. And he went to her and he said, you claim to believe in Jesus, but your life isn't showing it. And he brought her to this very moment, to a crossroad. And it was at that moment that she said, you know what? You're right. I must follow Christ. And she lived the rest of her life following Christ. 
You either believe or you disbelieve. There's no middle ground. Peter is very clear here. You either, you either trust in Christ or you don't. And that is why when we preach the gospel, what must we do? Bring them to this. You must believe. That's the message that we preach. We're to preach the gospel of Christ and call people to believe in, in Christ because they don't have faith in Him. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15.1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. And listen to what he says. Unless you believed in vain. Mm. Wow. Paul's saying here, I preached this gospel. And you were saved when you believed, unless you believed in vain. Then you are still in your unbelief if you believed in vain. Paul is not teaching here that you can have saving faith and then lose it. That's not what he's saying here. We know that no one can lose their salvation. But Paul is warning against non-saving faith. A faith that may look on the outside like it is genuine, but a faith that is a non-saving faith because it is not in Christ, the stone. Anyone who believes in vain is not truly saved. They show that because Paul says there, they don't hold fast the word of Christ. He says, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. What is that word? It's the word of God. Which is also how Peter describes unbelievers down in verse 8. Notice down in verse 8, he says, For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. Paul says, if that is you, then you believed in vain. So what do they need? What do these unbelievers need? They need the gospel. They need the message of the gospel. That's why Paul continues on and he tells them of the great message in verse 3 in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He says, listen, this is of first importance. What did God say back in verse 6? Behold, listen up. This is so important for you to know. We are to take people to Christ. Preach Christ to them. That is the only message that will take someone from disbelief to belief. It's the only message. It's the gospel. We must call them to turn from their sin and to trust in Christ who is our precious stone. Paul reminds us in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For the entire world. It is the gospel that all unbelievers need. Now, look again at verse 7. Isn't that a sad word that is there in verse 7? 
Notice that word, but. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve. Oftentimes we hear this word in the opposite context. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, right? And we rejoice. It's a glorious word there, and and rightly so. We should get excited about that. But God, because God took my dead heart and made it alive. But here it's used in the reverse. We are those who believe, but for those who disbelieve. And this is a reminder to us that there are those who are out there who don't know the preciousness of Christ. And they don't believe. They don't know the love of Christ. They have not come to the chief cornerstone and throw them, thrown themselves upon Him. So what do we do? We tell them about our precious Savior. We tell them about the sweetness and the love of Christ and we beg them, we plead with them to come to Him. Because the promise is that all who come to Christ will not be put to shame. (laughs) We tell them there is no one greater than Him. There is no one more valuable than Him. There is no one more precious than Christ. And that all who come to Him will not be disappointed. We point them to our precious and loving Savior. Knowing how precious He is because of what He has done in our lives, right? We have all experienced the preciousness of Christ in our own hearts and our own lives. And our job is to go and tell them. To tell them how they can come to know the preciousness, the sweetness, the love of Christ. Well, there's more to say about those who fail to believe in God's spiritual house, but we'll look at that next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. Oh, he is so amazing, precious, sweet to us. For there is no one greater than Him. Lord, may that truth be planted deep within our hearts. And may we understand and know Him in a greater way. Lord, may this truth drive us more to Christ. For He is so precious. He is so good. He is priceless. Lord, we thank You for Your perfect plan in sending Him, laying Him in Zion to be the chief cornerstone, to be our rock, to be our Redeemer. Lord, I pray for anyone who is here this morning who is not trusting in Christ, who doesn't know the preciousness of our Savior. Father, may you draw them to you. May you open their eyes to see their sin and their need for a Savior. May they come to the cross and throw themselves at your mercy. And God, may your mercy and grace save them and bring them into this spiritual house that they might be established on the chief cornerstone 
so that they will not be put to shame. Father, we thank you for the great promise that we have in Christ, that by your great love for us, as we who believe in him, Lord, we are honored by you and we will be honored by you because we belong to you. We are yours. We thank you for that great promise that nothing can separate us from your love. Father, we give you praise and glory and honor and adoration and worship for it's you and you alone who deserve it all. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.